0: This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and welcome on this rainy Saturday morning. Uh, this is going to be an exciting show today, uh, this because it's a topic we haven't covered in the past. Today uh, we're going to be talking about the retina, and I'm especially Happy to have Dr. Scott Walter with us. Dr. Walter is a retinal specialist. He's a retinal surgeon. So we're going to talk a lot about today what is the retina, a detached retina. We're going to talk about degeneration of the retina because it's so crucial to our vision and age-related changes. I'm going to give out the phone numbers now so everybody has them, and we'll start taking phone calls in the second segment, 860-522-9842. And 1-800-966-9842. A couple of things I did want to talk about today in this part of the show, and uh, some of it is in a generality and people who haven't been regular listeners to the show, that this is a different kind of show. When you listen to the radio these days, I'm kind of tired of all the hate speech. Um, There's a lot of hate going on uh criticism of people criticisms of the press uh, no matter what they are whether they be written or radio there's talk about fake news free speech i want people to understand that at least for this hour uh, our show is dedicated to medicine and science and helping folks improve their health well, we don't have any political bias here uh our station uh some of the people you hear on our station do have that our station here, WTIC, doesn't tell me who to have on as guests, uh, what we have to present, and uh, I have total freedom in putting this show together. One of the things we also do is kind of debunk the pseudoscience. If you'll notice, the sponsors, we, we don't really have sponsors to our show. We have partners, uh, of which St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center has been a, a big partner for our show. Uh, All our partners on this show have been carefully vetted, and what I mean is we are not selling things that uh, promote growth of your hair or shrinkage of other parts of your body that are not proven. Uh, We get those calls all the time. I mean, we could be filling this with a lot of unproven science, but that doesn't happen on this program, and I am fortunate uh, to, to be at this station because of that. We don't sell cures. We don't sell snake oil here. But it's important for us to note that, at least for this hour, this is what we're going to do. We don't have a political bias. You're not going to hear hateful speech. You're not going to hear a criticism. You're going to hear about science, and you're going to hear about how to make yourself feel better and increase your longevity. With that, as we begin, this day in medicine, August 4th, 1906, Dr. Howard Taylor Ricketts published his seminal paper on the transmission of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever by the Bite of a Wood Tick. So Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is something we've known about since 1906. The reason I bring this up and why this is especially important is we've talked a lot on the show about tick-borne illnesses, Lyme disease, Borreliosis. Anaplasmosis, those are the things we've talked about, and we see these vector-borne things, these vector-borne illnesses. It's especially pertinent because this week we received a notice from the governor, Governor Malloy, about a West Nile virus alert. Now, the reason for this alert, we always start seeing West Nile virus this time of year. Actually, it's a little bit earlier uh, than I would expect. West Nile virus is a virus transmitted by mosquitoes. And this year, we have a lot more mosquitoes than we've had in the past. And in five separate Connecticut towns, they have been able to find mosquitoes carrying West Nile virus. So what is the West Nile virus? And As always, these are viruses that have started to develop as a result of travel, and they get transmitted by mosquitoes. One of the things you're going to look for with West Nile virus is a typical viral illness, fever, headache, body aches, rash. Now, most of the cases of West Nile virus are relatively benign, kind of like getting over an extended flu. When we're worried is when we have neurologic complications, specifically more severe headache and what we call a meningoencephalitis, where it affects the brain and the membranes surrounding the brain, in which case people develop confusion, change in consciousness, potentially loss of consciousness. So again, we're on the lookout now for these mosquitoes. What are we going to do about it? Protect ourselves. When we're outside, wear long sleeves, wear long pants if you're going to be in deep woods. If you're a golfer, leave the ball there, okay? I can only tell you, just leave the ball in the deep grass. Don't come out of there bitten by ticks. It's not worth it, even if it is a $4 golf ball, okay? Just leave it there. Let somebody else pick it up in winter when everything dies back. So it's important when we're outside to protect ourselves. Spray using DEET, okay? Even when it, when you hear the word DEET, you say, "Oh, it's some dangerous chemical." No, it's a protective chemical. It's there to protect you from being bitten and developing a severe disease. The final item I wanted to talk to about today is autism treatment regulations in Connecticut. Uh, this is interesting because is. Our listeners know we've had many talks about autism and autism spectrum disorders. Autism is a spectrum, it is not a specific disease. It's a range of illnesses and behaviors. So, the people who become involved in this do something called behavioral analysis. And behavioral analysis is a way of making the diagnosis and seeing where someone fits into this spectrum. And more importantly, Really, helping people with autism learn new skills so they can adapt to the environment and to being independent. What's happened is there's never been any regulation to people who call themselves behavioral analysts until now, and Connecticut has joined the other states in starting to really to certify folks. Now, there are master's level degrees in this, there are doctoral degrees. Uh, but there's re- there are really not enough of these folks to meet the growing demand. I think as a parent and the parents listening and grandparents know that if you have a child in your family, uh, you'll do anything uh, for that child and spend anything if you can help them succeed. Well, we'll do that in general, but especially if you're faced with a challenge like autism. So many of these specialists charge a lot of money as consultants for people who can afford it. So the point here is that finally the state of Connecticut is now certifying behavioral and analysts who work with people with autism. So if you have a child or a family member who's autistic and on the spectrum and you're looking at having them work with someone as a counselor or an analyst, make sure they are certified. Check those credentials. Because there are a lot of people out there with a lot of unproven theories, and this is something too valuable to work with. Next up, we're going to be chatting with my guest today, Dr. Scott Walter from St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. He's a retinal surgeon. I'm going to give you the phone numbers again, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Those are the sounds of Jason Mraz. Uh, Jason Mraz will be at Mohegan Sun tonight um, at the arena. So if you get a chance, get on over there uh, where there are so many dining opportunities and gaming opportunities. We know you'll want to be there. I will be there, let's see, tomorrow. We have the Connecticut Sun playing the Las Vegas Aces. And then I will be there again on Friday. Now, Fridays are very special. Every two years, Coach Calhoun, Jim Calhoun, sponsors a charity event. And the money goes to the Calhoun Cardiac Center at the University of Connecticut. But he brings in all the alumni. And this year, as as they did last two years ago, they bring in both – Women and men, former players from UConn. And everybody comes out. Uh, Ray Allen will be there. He's there every time. And then they do several golf events. So um, I was asked to be there as well. So I will. So if you're there, come on down. Come down and say hello. I'd love to uh, meet up with uh, so many of our listeners as I do um, throughout the week. So, and if you get a chance, get over to Mohegan Sun. My guest today is uh, Dr. Scott Walter. Dr. Walter is an eye surgeon, and specifically did a fellowship in retinal surgery and oncology of the eye. Something I never really thought about is cancer treatment of the eye. So uh, with that, Scott, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Tony. Really great to be here.
0: So let's chat a little bit about your background and training. I I read some of your bio that was sent over, and um, I was just intrigued. Can Can you tell us a little bit about your training in becoming a physician and your specialty in retinal surgery?
1: Well, sure. I'd be glad to. Um, I I went to Stanford for undergrad, and uh, initially I wasn't sure if I wanted to go into medicine at all. Uh, My parents were both dentists, so I was kind of introduced to the um, medical field, you know, through their professions. But uh, you know, there's a real pre-med culture these days in, in undergraduate education. Really? It really just drove me nuts. You know, everyone, you know, gunning for, you know, the, the top marks in their classes and jumping through all the right hoops to get into medical school, and I just wasn't that person. Um, and so I, uh, I ended up doing my undergraduate training in anthropology, actually, uh, and I fell into a really cool department uh, called the Department of Anthropological Sciences. Where I got an opportunity to, uh, to you know, do some really interesting stuff. I, I studied an ancient uh, retrovirus that uh, infected ancestors, our ancestors, three million years ago, and and tried to look at you know how that showed us uh, where people were uh, in uh, a remote history. You know, using these molecular signatures, and and so it was a really, really unique and and interesting. Uh, uh, undergraduate experience that ultimately led me to medicine, but through a pretty unconventional pathway. So I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania uh, for my medical training in Philadelphia. Uh, Philly's a great city. I had a wonderful time there, and um, and UPenn is just a phenomenal medical center. If you've if you've ever been there, it's really sure an enormous uh, 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 enterprise and. Um, the oldest hospital in the country and a really phenomenal research institution. So I had a a wonderful time there, um, really learned a lot about um, uh, research. And uh, at the time, actually, uh, researchers at UPenn were developing the first ever gene therapy uh, for an inherited retinal condition. And that was one of the things that really inspired me to go into retina. And actually this year, 2018, the FDA finally approved the first ever gene therapy for use in the eye. So things have really come full circle, um, and it's exciting that we now have this uh, this tool in our arsenal for inherited retinal disease.
0: So let's chat. First of all, I find it fascinating that you went from anthropology. We we had a discussion uh, the other day about uh, on the show about uh, anatomic pathology, uh, and uh, it was uh, it was our day in medicine, <clears throat> talking about the founder of anatomic pathology. My professor at the University of Rome, where I went to medical school in anatomic pathology, was really world-renowned because of his work looking at the remains and ancient remains. So it's interesting how much we learn from the past. But uh, moving ahead, can you tell our listeners – what the retina is, just so everybody understands. We always hear the word, we know it has to do with vision, but what what is the retina?
1: So the retina is the light-sensitive tissue of the eye, and it's basically like wallpaper lining the inside of the eye that allows us to see. It's the actual tissue that transforms light coming into the eye into electrical signals that are then transmitted to the brain and allow us to see. And the central portion of the retina, called the macula, is really the most important Portion for our vision. That's where our high-acuity vision is, where we're able to read, fine print, recognize faces, discriminate colors. And that vision is really critical to our everyday functioning.
0: So with that, we hear a lot about different – what are some of the diseases you deal with in the retina specifically?
1: So retinal uh, vision loss accounts for uh, – Uh, Most cases of blindness in the United States, um, because most other forms of uh, vision loss are readily treatable, such as cataracts. Um, The most common cause of blindness in uh, American adults under 65 years of age is diabetic retinopathy. So that is really a major public health crisis right now with the rising rates of obesity and diabetes in our country. The other major cause of blindness in adults over 65 years of age is age-related macular degeneration, and um, we're also facing a major epidemic in terms of macular degeneration because our population's living longer. People are now living routinely into their 80s, sometimes into their 90s. I've seen patients living beyond 100, and... uh, by the time you get to that age, unfortunately, just about everyone develops uh, visually significant loss of their central macular vision due to macular degeneration.
0: Well, things wear out. I mean, but I think that's the problem is joints are wearing out and your eyes are wearing out as well, I
1: guess is what you're saying. It's true. But, you know, people are living much more healthy, functional lives. And, uh, you know, people in their 70s and 80s especially expect to be out there playing golf and uh, enjoying their retirement, and certainly if you have a visually threatening condition, um, that can really have a major impact on your quality of life in retirement.
0: I just want to touch quickly on in in a few minutes we have left in this segment is diabetic retinopathy. Uh, You know, we've always heard about laser treatment. Uh, Whenever I think of diabetic retinopathy, I think of people using lasers and things like that, which were uh, back uh, when I was in med school was like the beginning of of really using laser treatment. Is that still the way of treating diabetic retinopathy and hemorrhage uh, from diabetic retinopathy?
1: Well, uh, there's still definitely a role for laser surgery in diabetic retinopathy, both for the proliferative form of the disease, which – has a number of very immediately sight-threatening complications, such as hemorrhage in the eye or bleeding in the eye, detachment of the retina, and a rapidly progressive form of what's called neovascular glaucoma, where patients can, can rapidly extinguish their vision. Um, so laser still has a, a definite role um, in preventing or arresting the disease once we get to that end stage. Um, but what we've Uh, been doing in our field is kind of moving to treating the earlier and earlier stages of the disease with less and less invasive therapies. So there are now less invasive laser treatments as well as medications that can be injected into the eye uh, for patients with swelling in the retina or diabetic macular edema that can uh, erase some of the damage that's been done and reverse some of the swelling in the retina that causes um, lower levels of visual impairment that are still, you know, Uh, functionally important for patients in their day-to-day lives.
0: It's funny because when you talk, and I know with the gene therapy, you talk about injections into the eye uh, for diabetic retinopathy, and I know the new gene therapy is an injection into the eye. Uh, I think that when we hear the words injections into the eye, we all get goosebumps a little bit here, Scott. Um, Can you explain that? Uh, Are people anesthetized when you do that, or how does (laughs) that actually happen?
1: Can you clear that up for me? Absolutely. Well, I think it's an important topic that that we should hit on because uh, injections or intravitreal injections into the uh, vitreous cavity of the eye have become the most commonly performed procedure, medical procedure in the United States. I didn't know that. There are over 4 million of these injections performed every year, okay? And uh, they're performed in the office. Uh, Topical anesthetics are used uh, to numb the eye. There are some new ideas about using freezing therapy to temporarily uh, numb the eye to also uh, increase the uh, anesthesia and and convenience from a patient standpoint. But these are a very commonly performed procedure, and it is kind of horrific sounding when you hear it for the first time. But you'd be amazed. We do this on uh, everyone from children to uh, patients in their 90s and and. Generally, it's very well tolerated with our uh, topical numbing, and uh, some people use additional um, uh, subconjunctival numbing uh, injections. Uh,
0: This is great. Today, we're chatting with my guest today, Dr. Scott Walter from St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. I'm going to give you his phone number. I wanted to make sure everybody has that so I don't forget, but I'll give it again towards the end if you need an appointment regarding uh, retinal problem, you're going to call Dr. Walter at 860-527-9020. Our phone numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. We're going to be back in the next segment chatting with Dr. Walter about some really remarkable treatments for the retina, including uh, retinal detachment, but something called retinal transplantation. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and my guest today is Dr. Scott Walter. Dr. Walter is a retinal surgeon. And he has done a lot of work in uh, retinal oncology. And apropos, uh, we have a question from Elaine, uh, who is in Manchester. Elaine, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you have a question about a mole in the eye. I have a mole. Yes, I have a mole in my eye, and doctors are following it up every six months. And also, what about the flashing lights that you see? on the sides of your eyes. Great question. Uh, Scott, we wanted to talk a little bit about oncology of the eye. So I thought we'd take this question um, because obviously uh, Elaine is talking about a growth in the eye. Can you talk a little bit about a mole in the eye?
1: Absolutely. So moles in the eye are actually quite common. About one in 10 Caucasians has a mole under the retina called a choroidal nevus. And the vast majority of choroidal nevi are benign and uh, you know, slow growing and don't cause any visual symptoms. However, a, a small minority of them can transform into a melanoma, which is a malignancy or a cancer that can uh, grow more aggressively in the eye, affect the vision, and potentially spread from the eye to other parts of the body. And so it's very important since obviously you can't monitor a mole underneath your retina, yourself, um, by checking it in the mirror, Uh, you need to see a a specialist to have your eyes dilated and have uh, pictures taken so that we can monitor, uh, you know, every six months or so, you know, whether there's been any growth or change in the appearance of the lesion. Um, And certain moles, kind of it's a spectrum between a very benign appearing mole and a more, you know, cancerous appearing mole, and some may need to be monitored more frequently than others others depending on their characteristics. So I would certainly, uh, you know, advise that this, uh, caller, uh, you know, stick with the, uh, you know, six monthly evaluations. I see a lot of patients either for second opinions or, or to monitor these lesions, you know, with multimodal imaging. And we really have, you know, phenomenal imaging technology these days, you know, with wide field, uh, cameras and, uh, Uh, depth uh, resolved imaging with ultrasound and optical um, imaging modalities that can really help us see what's going on at a fine detail.
0: Interesting. The other part of her question being flashing lights. I mean I I see that all the time in neurology and people have migraine and have various uh, visual obscurations. Do you see uh, visual changes like that with with a nevus?
1: Well sometimes uh, a nevus can cause flashing lights if it's growing. Um, and so that is a you know potentially worrisome um, uh, symptom in someone with a, a nevus. Um However, there are many causes of flashing lights, as you point out. Uh, migraines certainly being one of them. Uh, more common things you know, uh, in uh, you know adults in their 50s, 60s uh, typically have what's called a posterior vitreous detachment, which is where the vitreous gel in the eye naturally separates as an age-related. Uh, Change and that can induce some flashing lights as well. So, not all flashes are necessarily concerning, but you know because it could indicate a more concerning problem, particularly in the setting of a you know choroidal nevus. The the flashes should be evaluated, especially if that's a new symptom.
0: Right, Elaine. Thank you for the call. Great chatting with you. Thank you. Interesting. I have flashing lights on the right eye, and the nevus is in the left eye. Well, then. (laughs) It's <laughs> probably not related to that, but anyhow, right, right, great, great right. chatting with you. Yeah, thank Thanks. you. Bye bye. Um, a little bit. I wanted to touch a little bit on oncology of the eye because it's not something we hear a lot about, especially melanoma of the eye, as you mentioned already. What other types of tumors do you see in the eye?
1: Well, melanoma of the eye is the most common primary intraocular malignancy. What that means is it's the most common cancer that starts in the eye. Um, but there are other cancers that can spread to the eye. So breast cancer and lung cancer, you know, are more common cancers that affect other parts of the body. But in the more advanced stages of those cancers, they can spread to other organs. I never really think of that. Yeah.
0: I don't think that's something we think of commonly.
1: Yeah. So I actually, uh, you know, recently diagnosed lung cancer in a in a physician who uh, came to me with um, uh, tumors in both eyes. Uh, and that was his presenting um manifestation of lung cancer. So there are people out there, you know, who present with systemic cancers that are first detected in the eye. There are people out there with known, you know, cancers in other parts of the body that then develop, you know, tumors in the eye. So thankfully th- those are rare, um, but, uh, but people are out there with those conditions. And uh, another rare condition is something called retinoblastoma, which is a cancer that develops in infancy. Um, And that's related to um, uh, genetic mutations that occur early on in development in the developing retina and lead to a uh, a cancer that can be very aggressive uh, in terms of uh, impacting uh, the vision of a child and uh, potentially life-threatening condition if not caught and treated early. So that's one reason why, you know, if parents ever notice a White reflex, uh, when they're looking at uh, their child's pupil, it's very important to see an eye care specialist to have that evaluated.
0: Uh, Treatment for cancer of the eye, other than enucleation, I mean, is that still being done? Is that still common to do?
1: Well, many years ago, that was all we had, was to uh, enucleate or remove an eye with a suspected cancer. But thankfully, we've really come a long way. Um, and uh, today most patients with eye cancer are treated more conservatively. There are radiation treatments that can be performed to uh, destroy uh, a tumor in the eye. Unfortunately, radiation is not without side effects, so um, often these patients may have um, compromise in visual function over time, and uh, that's something that I actually presented on at the recent uh, meeting of the American Society of Retina Specialists in Vancouver. Um now, there are new treatments that I think are uh on the horizon for melanoma, one of which is an investigational therapy, which was also presented at the meeting. It's still in very early stage clinical trials, so we're not sure yet if it's safe and effective uh, but this again is moving towards a less invasive treatment where a medication is injected into the eye in the office and then a laser treatment is applied to the tumor after the medication has uh basically Uh, uh, bound to the tumor in a highly specific way. So we're hopeful that that may allow us to treat some of these small tumors uh, without causing as much uh, collateral damage to the eye and to the patient's vision.
0: This is great stuff. Uh, We're going to take a quick question before the break. I wanted to get this in. Uh, This is Carla in Tallinn. You had a question about brown spots in the eye?
1: Uh, the center, my husband complained about a, uh, a month ago, a brown spot in the center of his vision. He could not see, but all around the edge he could see. And um, just kind of wondering, his doctor said he, they were just going to keep a watch on that, but is that something to be concerned about? Or?
0: Interesting question. Uh, so cent- it sounds like some central vision loss. And how long did it last for, Carla? Oh, my goodness, maybe 20 minutes. I'm not sure. He was away. So it's a little longer than a floater. What do you think, Scott? I'm going to hang up on you, Carla, because we're going to go to a break, but we're going to answer your question now. Thanks for calling in. All
1: right. Thank you. So transient vision loss, you know, lasting uh, a period of of minutes um, uh, is is a worrisome sign. Uh, It could indicate um, uh, a a stroke or, or almost a stroke occurring in the retina, okay? So just as uh, some strokes leave permanent neurological damage, some strokes or transient ischemic attacks can cause temporary uh, neurologic problems that reverse. Same thing happens with the eye. The eye is really an extension of the brain. And uh, if you have a lack of blood flow to the eye, that can cause um, a central uh, uh, vision loss, Uh, that may be restored if the blood flow is restored to the eye, but could indicate, you know, risk for ongoing uh, strokes either in the eye or in the brain. So I would definitely advise, um, you know, if there's any indication that this could be vascular uh, event or a a stroke-like event that this patient um, have a full workup as if it were a stroke equivalent.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with you. That really needs more analysis in terms of risk factors, high cholesterol, diabetes, um, the usual risk factors, because 20 minutes is fairly long um, to have that visual loss. It's not like a floater or a flash. Uh, sometimes you'll see that visual loss followed by a migraine, but again, very difficult to differentiate, as you pointed out, between a transient ischemic attack or a, a partial stroke um, and another condition. So, uh, Carla, I hope your husband will be getting that uh, further investigated by his physician. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Scott Walter from St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, and we're talking about the retina. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're chatting with my guest today, Dr. Scott Walter from St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Uh Scott, one of the things I really wanted to hit on was something I was fascinated by, and that is retinal transplantation. Um, and I know this is something, a very new procedure and something you do. Can you talk a little bit about that and what conditions you may use that in? Um, because I found it fascinating.
1: Well, great question, uh, Tony. So transplantation, uh within the context of the eye, you know, has been around for many years. Uh, and it started with corneal transplantation, which, uh, was first attempted, you know, uh, decades ago and has now really been refined into a pretty routine procedure that, uh, is performed quite commonly in the United States. Retinal transplantation, however, has, has, uh, only recently, uh, been entertained as a treatment option for certain conditions. And, uh, This technique was actually pioneered by a mentor of mine at Duke, Dr. Tamer Mahmood, who uh, first introduced the uh, technique for patients with large refractory macular holes. So what is a macular hole? Macular hole is basically a break or a tear right in the center of your vision. it's a circular hole that uh, leads to a scotoma or a blind spot right in the center of your vision. And in some cases, it can be associated with a retinal detachment. And fixing a retinal detachment with a macular hole is quite challenging because uh, the typical way in which we treat a retinal break in a retinal detachment surgery is by lasering the edges of the break. But of course, laser destroys the tissue and... Um, when we're dealing with the center of a patient's vision, obviously we, we're looking to do something a little less destructive if we're trying to close that break. So, a number of techniques have been uh, have been uh, developed to treat macular holes in the context of retinal detachment. But I think retinal transplantation is emerging as maybe uh, the most promising among them, and uh, so. We actually just performed the first such procedure here in Connecticut. There have only been maybe 50 or so cases worldwide of this procedure, and uh, it was for a patient with a large macular hole that had been previously um, uh, repaired, but uh, conventional surgery failed, and unfortunately the patient developed a retinal detachment in addition to reopening of the macular hole. So that was the context in which uh, we're now investigating this new therapy.
0: So where do you take the retina from? Do you take it from the good eye? Is it um, from a cadaver, like when you do cataract, uh, rather when you do corneal transplants? Where where are you getting the retinal tissue from?
1: So we call this an autologous retinal transplant. And autologous means that it's coming from the same patient. And uh, we're harvesting a portion of the peripheral retina, which is way out in the periphery where there's redundant retina that's really not uh, being used for the patient's vision. And sometimes in a retinal detachment surgery, we'll perform a retinectomy where we actually remove portions of the peripheral retina in order to relax the retina and reattach it. And so in this case, I was uh, performing a retinectomy anyway, so some retina. Retinal tissue was being surgically removed during the procedure, and I harvested a portion of that tissue and grafted it into the macular hole in order to plug the hole and uh, close the hole so that the patient's retina would stay attached
0: i'm I'm blown away, uh, actually, this is the brave new world folks um that we're living in right now when we talk about things like retinal transplantation. um I want to grab a question from Paul, who's been very patient. um uh, Paul, you're on
1: okay, hi, thanks for taking my call hey. I had um cataracts and I had surgery to repair both and I did well I did great and my vision for distance was you know back to twenty twenty but now I close my right eye, my left eye is perfect, I close my left eye, everything is fuzzy and blurry. Can you get a cataract on an eye that's been repaired? Uh, interesting question, Scott. So the most common cause of blurry vision in an eye that's previously had cataract surgery is something called a posterior capsular opacification, which is basically a film that develops behind the lens implant. Um, And that can be treated in the office with a laser procedure, takes about five minutes um, uh, in the office, uh, no trip back to the operating room required in most cases. So that, I think, is probably what's going on in your situation and something you should consult with the uh, surgeon who performed the original procedure to see what they can do about it. But I would guess that that's something that could be addressed in the office.
0: Paul, that's great. I hope we've helped you.
1: Um, very much. I'll get an appointment with my optometrist.
0: That sounds good. Well, you're okay. going to have to see an ophthalmologist, Our not ophthalmologist. an optometrist. Yeah. Okay. All there right. You All right. Thank take you care. Bye. Thank you.
1: Bye. Um,
0: quickly, in the last couple of minutes. So we've heard about kind of the cutting edge now. What's the future look like for for ophthalmology? What 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 are the things when you go to the meetings to present? What are the things being talked about as what the next step is? I mean, we have we've, uh, we've seen a lot in the world of um, uh, antibodies um, and uh, and different types of treatments uh, for other conditions. What what are they talking about in the ophthalmology world?
1: Well, as we were talking about earlier, um, intravitreal injections have really become one of the most commonly performed procedures in the United States, and uh, although. You know it's an in-office procedure and we're able to anesthetize the patient it still is a significant treatment burden for patients who are often coming back on a monthly basis um, sometimes less frequently but you know if if you're thinking about an elderly patient with transportation difficulties getting to the office every month for an injection is a is a significant uh, uh undertaking so Uh, One of the most exciting things that was presented at the American Society of Retina Specialist meetings was the results of a new study called the LADDER study um, in which uh, they investigated a port delivery system, which is a small port which is surgically implanted in the eye and allows us to refill the port with the drugs that are used to treat macular degeneration and and diabetic macular edema. And I think it's really exciting because what they showed is that it was... Um, It took about 15 months before the average patient needed for the port to be refilled, and that was equivalent to getting monthly injections for 15 months. So really an outstanding uh, new innovation.
0: Scott, this has been great to chat with you. Uh, We've been chatting with Dr. Scott Walter. I want to thank you for coming down today. If you want to get in touch with Dr. Scott Walter, who is a retinal surgeon, 860 527-9020, 527-9020, and he is affiliated with St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. In addition to Dr. Walter, I want to thank uh, Joe Acosta, who's been, Joe's been on the board today, Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Um, I will be away the next couple of weeks, and we will be having some uh, previously taped programs uh, that I know a lot of people have found very popular. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com.